says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was crucified? Clearly portrayed among you as crucified. Excuse me. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And Father, we humbly ask for the grace and help of your Holy Spirit this day as we open the word of God as an act of worship. Prepare us and please speak to us, Lord, through the truth and the power of your spirit's ministry And we ask in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, God wants each of us to experience his blessing and the fullness of the work of his spirit in our lives. And the question I guess we have to ask in relation to that is, how is that received? It's not a question whether or not the Lord wants us to experience the fullness of his spirit's power in a life. Sometimes the bigger question becomes, how is that actually experienced? How do I receive all that God wants for me in my spiritual life? Is it by earning it through spiritual performance and God kind of then rewards us once we're holy enough or we do enough right things or maintain a certain level of spirituality and kind of as an obligation, God then blesses us with his spirit's work? Or is it honestly something we experience because we trust in it by faith and we believe that God works and does it just because God is gracious? Well, we're going to see in this section that Paul is going to indicate to us that it is that latter thing, that it is by faith and through grace, whether it is salvation initially or all of the spiritual life. Paul wants to drive home this point in our text that we receive the work of God by faith and trusting in what God wants to do because of God's graciousness and God's blessing in our lives. Remember last time in verse 21 in the end of chapter 2, Paul left off there making kind of a strong declaration of how valuable the grace of God was. He said there in Galatians 2:21, I don't set aside the grace of God. He says for if righteousness comes through obeying or observing the regulations of the law, then he says Christ died in vain. In other words, the life of Christ, and more than that, the death of Christ, all that suffering, he says, it was vain, worthless, empty, of no effect, he says. It really wasn't necessary, apparently. If we're saying that in some way we can do something or accomplish some spiritual or religious task, and therefore uh, that's enough to make us right with God. Well, then he says if that was the case, then Christ's death was empty, It was worthless. Why would the father let him be subjected to those things? So he says, I refuse to set aside this glory of the grace of God that comes to us only through the life, suffering, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Paul knew that's the only way I'm experiencing the grace of God. Now, Paul, wanting to uphold the value of the grace of God, wants to amplify that once again the grace of God coming to us through the work of Jesus Christ. So that's why he then goes on in this next section, we'll see in chapter three, to do two things basically. First, we'll see he asks six questions. And those six questions are intended to almost be somewhat rhetorical. Again, a rhetorical question is when you ask a question 
And the answer is kind of already implied. You kind of ask the question with the purpose of what you're really trying to do is reinforce what somebody already knows to be true. And you're kind of trying to use the question to arouse in their mind again, look, you know what's right and you know what's wrong. And that question is kind of to invoke them to recognize that reality. And then Paul's going to make six quotations, interestingly enough, from the Old Testament scripture to kind of reinforce his teaching and to emphasize, look, what I am saying to you about the grace of God and being saved by grace and being righteous by grace alone through faith alone it's substantiated all the way from Genesis throughout the entirety of all the Old Testament scriptures, which Paul will use as his reference point. So he's going to use the word of God as a, if you would, a reference to substantiate his doctrinal beliefs. And that's always a good thing to do. So look with me in verse one. Paul begins by saying, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, he says, that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. So Paul begins here by reminding them how he had clearly presented to them already, many years ago when he first went there, the gospel of grace through the finished work of the life, crucifixion of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And Paul sort of just reminding them and challenging them how they had somehow turned away from this truth that was clearly portrayed to them when Paul came there the first time. You notice he reminds them of the foundation of their faith by saying, look, before he says, verse one, your very eyes, Jesus Christ, he says, was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. The language Paul uses there when he says clearly portrayed was the terminology that was used in regards to in that day when they came into a community and they wanted to give a declaration of a king or let's say make a public announcement about something that's very important and all the society needed to know. They would clearly publish it on a sign in a very visible, obvious area so that it would be impossible not to see what was being conveyed. This is the language that Paul uses there. Paul's basically using this language to say, look, I made it so evident when I came there among you that Jesus Christ was crucified for our sins. Paul says, there's no questioning. You know it as well as I do. And he says, before your very eyes, I clearly portrayed to you that Jesus Christ and him crucified was the way to be right with God. That's the gospel I already preached to you. Paul's saying that, that, that I came there. That's the only way forgiveness would be received. And he says, and all of you among the church, you understood this. It was already clearly portrayed to you. You already have seen this and come to understand it. They had already experienced the grace of God through salvation in each and every one of their lives. But since the time that Paul had been there, someone had kind of pulled the lever on the railroad track and calls them somehow spiritually to kind of take the curve, and they're now headed down the wrong track spiritually. They're now on the wrong track and heading in a detour, moving away from grace and moving in a wrong direction in their spiritual life. And so Paul's challenging them on that. He's concerned about this, and he seeks to stand in their way to reprove them, and he wants to reroute them back to grace. He wants to reroute them back to faith, and reminding them of how they began their spiritual life but had detoured. So he opens with kind of a stinging rebuke there in verse 1. Notice it. He says to them, Oh, 
foolish Galatians. Now, that term Paul uses there, foolish, is actually purposely kind of insulting their way of thinking. And, and the term fool or foolish that he's using there was basically a term that described someone who clearly had right information, but they set aside right information and kind of just dismissed and ignored it. So when Paul says fool, he's saying to them, look, the reason why this is foolish is he's saying you already have the facts. You clearly have the right information. You already know what's true, but you're setting aside what's true to pursue and to chase something that somebody else is kind of dangling in front of you. And you're running down a track for whatever reason that's contrary to what you know and dismissing something that you know is right just to pursue something that seems appealing or something that someone else is trying to press upon you and you're just kind of you know, kind of making concessions and going along with what they're saying. And that's why he says there in verse one to them, who has, again, interesting word, bewitched you, he says, that you would not obey the truth. And that word bewitched that Paul uses literally means what it says. It speaks of putting a spell on someone to influence them, to misguide them by in somehow kind of tricking them and causing deceptive control over their life. Now, that's pretty strong language. Would you agree that Paul says, who has put a spell on you spiritually? Who's bewitched you and deceived you, allowed you to be deceived in such a way and to be influenced? Again, these false teachers, the Judaizers, who we've already talked about, they had captivated believers in the church of Galatia because apparently they were so appealing in their presentation maybe so charismatic and convincing in how they gave their presentations that people yielded to their charisma and their great presentation rather than the content of what they were actually saying. And that's a great mistake spiritually. When people put more emphasis upon charismatic presentation rather than what is the content in the presentation. Is it true or is it not true? And they had allowed themselves to kind of bewitched even to the point where they're now disobeying the truth of God's word, which they already know. And, and to me, I find it interesting. Do you notice in verse one there that though this was a group of false teachers doing this, that Paul uses the singular, he says, who has bewitched you? Who's put a spell on you? Now, I can't be certain, but I have to wonder if perhaps in Paul's mind, he's thinking, I know exactly who singular it was. It was Satan himself. It was the greatest deceiver, the one who can put a spiritual spell and bewitch and deceive people better than anyone else. And he was the main one influencing the messages behind these false teachers and putting a spell on people and misguiding people spiritually into deception. Paul writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11 says this very strong language again. He says there are false apostles, deceitful workers transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. You see what the Bible says? How deceptive and sneaky Satan's work is that he himself masquerades not as an angel of darkness to scare people away so they wouldn't listen, but an angel of light. And then Paul says under the Holy Spirit's inspiration and his ministers. Satan has ministers? 
Well, Paul says his ministers actually transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. They represent themselves as ministers of righteousness or what's right, and they're actually ministers of Satan himself. That's, that's strong language. But what Paul's conveying is there are these doctrines of demons that throughout generations will flow and come through the church as they always have. And he says sometimes the one behind that is Satan seeking to bewitch and put a spell upon people to misguide their minds and to cause confusion and deception. And even in this case, to draw people as it was into legalism into works-based relationship with God rather than grace-based relationship to influence people to walk in error is always the plan of Satan. And Paul recognized this and was kind of almost sort of identifying it. And look, let me say this morning, is it possible to some extent that you've allowed yourself to maybe be misguided spiritually because of ideas you're hearing or some book you read or maybe some teaching you heard that is any way causing you Listen, to turn away from Jesus and to rule-based spiritual life or routines or rituals. And it's pulling you away from relationship with Christ and bring you into rules and routines that are actually diminishing just your personal depth of relationship with Jesus. Be careful of that. It was happening here to these very Galatian believers. Well, Paul asks a second question in verse 2 by saying this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the spirit, he says, by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? So a second question to them is about how they received the Holy Spirit originally at salvation. That's what he's talking about here. He's saying, when you first were saved, how was it in your salvation experience, he says, that you received the Holy Spirit? The Bible is replete, of course, we have the full canon of Scripture now, with teaching that the moment a person exercises their faith to receive Jesus Christ as their personal Savior for their sin and the Lord over their life, that at that moment of spiritual conversion, when we call on the name of the Lord, we're saved. And not only are we forgiven of our sin, not only are we delivered from the ultimate destiny of having to go to hell for our sin. Not only are we given the, the gift of God, which is eternal life in heaven, but also that we receive the spirit of God's entrance inside of us, that we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit at the moment that we receive Jesus Christ. When we receive Jesus, we receive the spirit of the Lord who enters and remains within us. Again, Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6, 2 Timothy chapter 1, just to mention a few, all state the Spirit of God dwells in you as a believer. So Paul here, understanding this, asks, when you receive the Spirit's entrance and indwelling originally, he asks here in verse 2 to the believers, question, he says, how did that happen? How did it happen? Was it through the works of the law or through the hearing of faith? Paul says, when you first received the Holy Spirit, was that a process whereby as you were trying to be a good Christian, you were working to kind of clean up your act and get some sins out of your life? And as you kind of were progressing a little bit in your walk with Jesus and you were kind of keeping the law good enough and, and doing those things that then God said, well, I mean, OK, I guess I'll reward you by letting you have my Holy Spirit to help you along now. Paul says, was it that way through the works of law? Or he says, 
Was it by the hearing of faith, he says? That is, you heard the gospel of salvation, you exercise faith in Jesus Christ, and through that exercising of your faith, God honored it by giving you the fullness of salvation and gave you his very spirit to dwell within you. Well, obviously, it's the latter. It was by simple faith, trusting in the word of God and his promise that we've received the Holy Spirit initially, and God has given us the spirit in response to our belief in his word by faith alone. And how wonderful to have been able to, at our salvation, to have received the spirit into our life because it is the Holy Spirit who does so many wonderful things of ministry within our lives. It's the Holy Spirit who made us come alive unto God, that we would have a living relationship with God so that we can pray and talk to him and worship him and experience him in a personal way. It's the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, who seals us for the day of salvation and and keeps working in our lives until the day ultimately salvation is completed when our body comes to its end and we're liberated from these dying and failing bodies and we enter right into the presence of eternal life of our Lord. It's the Holy Spirit who we received, who empowers us and helps us to live godly and to overcome sin and to bear the fruit of the Spirit and to be able to serve the Lord and be used by God. So Paul, in light of that, then says in verse three, are you so foolish? He asks again, having begun now, he says, in the Spirit, Are you now being made perfect, complete, he says, by the flesh? So Paul's next question here in verse 3 addresses how does the believer progress now spiritually? Once you receive the Holy Spirit initially, well, Paul says, so then how do we progress spiritually? How do we continue to go onward once you're saved and indwelt with the Spirit? The Christian spiritual life began by the power of the Holy Spirit, who came into us and the Holy Spirit opened up our eyes, made us come alive, as we've said, gave us a new perspective. All of a sudden you find, right, when the Holy Spirit comes in, you have new spiritual desires you never had before. Your attitudes begin to change. The Holy Spirit gives you power to start repenting of sin. Change starts to happen in your life. And it's the Holy Spirit who starts making you become more like Jesus and you're starting to get used in God's work. And a lot of times when you're first saved, this kind of stuff's happening and you're completely oblivious to what God's doing in you. True story. I remember distinctly. I remember I got saved a, a month after I graduated high school. And I remember about a month or so after I was a Christian, something happened. There was a very tense situation and, and the situation unfolded, and afterwards I had this epiphany. I realized I didn't cuss. I didn't use one F-bomb there. How, and, and all of a sudden I, I went, I don't think I've cussed in a month. I, I, wow. And I wasn't even trying not to cuss anymore. But what had happened is the Holy Spirit was beginning to work in my life, and changes were happening by the power of the Spirit working within me doing these wonderful things inside of my life. Well, the point Paul is trying to convey is the process of God working in your life began by the Spirit's ministry power happening inside of you. And so Paul's now saying in verse 3, he says, look, having begun in the Spirit's power ministering in and through you, Paul's question is, are you now going to perfect yourself? Are you now going through, through the process of your own efforts finish what the Holy Spirit actually started, as if somehow we're going to improve 
on the work of the Spirit of God, as if somehow having begun in the power of the Spirit, he's saying, can you now complete the Spirit's work in you by your own fleshly works? Are you going to be able to somehow finish the process of becoming more godly by human efforts? By doing things to make yourself more Christ-like or more spiritual, observing certain things in the flesh? And look, this is important because this is a common thing that we can kind of easily slip into as believers, even somewhat subtly, where we're walking with the Lord and we're enjoying grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, like I said, is doing things in us and changing us and these wonderful things are happening as we're just loving the Lord and reading our Bible and praying and we're kind of somewhat oblivious to all these wonderful things the Holy Spirit's doing inside of our lives. But then all of a sudden, it's, it's like we start to get a little smart spiritually and we start kind of establishing then like these little routines of spiritual life. Certain things that are our routines, things we do or don't do, things we refrain from or things we think are important disciplines or habit. And look, they may be good things. I'm not diminishing them. Good routines are good routines. Godly routines are godly routines as well as convictions. But sometimes we make a mistake where we start establishing these little routines and following our own little rules and standards. And we subtly start to think that somehow that's what's making us more spiritual. That's why we are more spiritual or in some ways kind of that we're actually going to have greater growth and maturity and we're going to be able to change because of our kind of human standards that we set for ourselves for spiritual life. And we start kind of relying upon those things, thinking it's actually our works that's in some ways bringing about the process of the spiritual work of helping us to grow or be more Christ-like or be somehow you know going deeper in the Christian life. And, and that's why Paul says that's when this question comes into great helpful effect to ask ourselves, having begun in the spirit, are you now going to finish the process in the flesh? Having begun in the spirit to overcome that sin that dominated your life, are you now in the flesh going to continue to have victory over that sin by your efforts? Having begun in the spirit, are you now going to finish what God's doing in your life through your routines or your human efforts? And, and, and Paul would say to Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's the Christian's confidence. Dependence upon the full, continuous work of the Spirit and Jesus completing what he started in our lives inwardly. It's he who brings change. Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.18 speaks of Christians changing in this manner he says we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the lord are being transformed in the same image from glory to glory listen just as by the spirit of the lord paul says in second corinthians three eighteen, here's our job we keep looking to jesus we keep walking with jesus and worshiping jesus and as we're beholding jesus he says by the Spirit of the Lord, we're being transformed, not transforming ourselves. We're being transformed supernaturally by the Spirit of the Lord. I don't know about you. That takes a lot of stress off my back. It takes a lot of pressure off. That also means I should take a little bit of the stress and pressure off of other people by thinking they need to change at a faster pace or change the way I want them to change. What I should be doing is letting people walk with Jesus and realizing we are all being transformed. We haven't been transformed, if you notice yet. 
we're being transformed by the Spirit of the Lord as we keep Jesus the focus and not get legalistic in our spiritual lives, but just keep loving and serving him and letting the Holy Spirit finish what he started in us. Paul says, have you suffered so many things, verse 4, in vain for nothing, if indeed it was in vain? And what he's saying there is, you Christians in Galatia, you've already suffered persecution. When I came there and spoke about Jesus as the way of salvation, and you experienced grace, and you were greatly persecuted, and he says, don't let that be in vain. Keep your faith in Jesus. You stay relational with Jesus and let him do what he's doing in your life. Paul then in verse five with a following question says, therefore, he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by, again, notice same language again, does he do that by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? So Paul's final of these six initial questions here is in relation to how a believer experiences, now he's referring to continuous power from the Holy Spirit working not only in us personally, but amongst us corporately doing mighty works among them as a church there at Galatia. Notice he declares there in verse five, how it is the Lord himself, he says, verse five, who supplies the spirit to you. And that term he uses there, supplies, means to supply abundantly, and it's actually in the present tense. The idea is to supply abundantly on a continual, ongoing basis. He who continuously supplies abundantly, he says, the Spirit to you and works miraculous power among you, he says, how is that happening? And that term that Paul uses, works among you, works miracles among you, it's energizo, that term in the Greek where we get our term energy. He's saying it is God by his spirit who is bringing the energizing power to everything that is happening spiritually, not only in the life of the individual believer, but amongst the body of Christ as great works and miracles and life change happens among God's people. And he says that comes from the ongoing ministry of the spirit being poured out, baptizing people in the spirit, that supernatural ministry of the Lord taking place among the lives of God's people, the gifts of the Holy Spirit continuing to happen, interacting again, as he speaks of miraculous power, that is that works of the spirit through the gifts operating themselves through the body of Christ as they're amongst one another. And again, Paul's question, same as it was back up in verse two is the same Paul again says, as if they missed it the first time, how does that happen, he says? How does the Spirit continue to work amongst your lives as God's people? He says, does that blessing come and does God keep supplying the Spirit when the church makes sure to keep doing enough right things? As if somehow when the church is doing enough right things and meeting all the criteria and God sees the efforts we put in and we're holy enough at a certain point, then God says, okay, I guess I owe it to you. I guess you've done enough, so therefore I will pour out my spirit among you. And look, sometimes that idea is conveyed and almost kind of taught amongst the church that somehow if we really want to see God move powerfully by his spirit, it only happens if certain criteria are met and when we do certain things and when the church becomes holy enough 
and the church, whatever, you know, the church has to pray enough and be holy enough and do all. And we almost establish like there's this criteria. And once by the works of the law, we meet this criteria, then it's almost like an obligation. Well, then God has to pour out his spirit. We have to be careful of that. We don't want to treat God like a cosmic genie that if we just rub the, the genie the right way, eventually, he's, oh, I guess I got to grant on their wish. That's not how God works. The way that God works is when God sees a people who by faith believe he is a powerful, miracle-working God who is gracious and kind, continue to trust and believe and to ask, God, would you be gracious to us? God, we deserve nothing, but would you work miraculously among us and pour out your spirit, Lord? We're needy. Again, how did we receive the power of the spirit originally? We asked. We believe. Jesus says in John, uh, Luke chapter 11, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So again, whether it is the work of God's power among us collectively, whether it is the operating of the gifts of the spirit among the church. Again, Paul, speaking of the gifts of the spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, talks about how the manifestation of the spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. And then he begins to describe the glorious works of the Holy Spirit and his different gifts operating among us from discerning of spirits to a word of wisdom to a word of knowledge to speaking in tongues to all these beautiful things that are a part of the Spirit's ministry among us. And Paul's saying the root issue of that is grace and faith. And he says it happens in response to our belief. Listen, how do we begin to a greater degree to experience the ministry and the power of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit? By believing these things to be true and yielding ourselves. And as God sees us trusting and believing, Lord, I believe these things are true. God honors that faith. And as we yield ourselves, the power of the Spirit begins to move among us in greater degrees through our trust in the Lord and believing that he's gracious and again, so often the channel through which God's power comes is the channel of faith by just believing God, trusting him for these things to be true and letting him to begin to work among us graciously as he does. Well, Paul, having said this, gives some references to kind of, again, further emphasize how these things are true. The first he gives through these six quotations is in verse six. He says, just as the idea is supportive, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So what Paul does there, he refers back to Abraham as the ideal representative for them to see how we receive from God by grace and through faith. Now, he quotes here from Genesis chapter 15, and it's interesting he chooses Abraham as his representation because the Judaizers, who were so concerned about representing Judaism as so crucial— they were pointing to what? Moses and the law of Moses and how important that was. Well, Paul says, look, that's important. But he says, let's go back even further. Let's go back to the founding father of Judaism, to the first Jew who ever existed, Father Abraham, the very man who was a idol worshiper and Ur of the Chaldees. And God graciously called him despite who he was, called him to himself, worked in his life by a complete work of grace and determined that he would be the founding father of this unique race of people, the Jews, through which God, by his grace, would bring the Messiah, the scriptures, and all the plan of God throughout eternity by a work of grace. 
So Paul says, if we really want to consider something, why don't we consider him? And he refers to the time how in Abraham's life where God gave him these promises in Genesis 15 and Abraham hearing God's promises with nothing to bring to the table, but being an idol worshiper who was a pagan and a heathen, it says he believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. God told him, Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants more than the stars that that are in the sky that you could count them. And though he heard this impossible thing God could do, he believed God's promise. And when he believed God's word and promise, God accounted that in his account spiritually for being righteous before God. And of course, this was the example for God to give as Abraham would have many descendants behind him. That righteousness was deposited into Abraham's account when he believed. When he believed alone, God gave him that righteous standing and justified him in his life. And the law would not be given, what, for 400 more years. So Paul's point in that is, look, the foundation of all of this, if you really want to go back to the root, Paul says, is that God justified and blessed by faith 400 years before the law ever came to being. It has nothing to do with keeping the law, Paul's saying. It has everything to do with believing God as the first basis of right relationship with him. And Abraham proved that. He says, verse 7, therefore know, in light of that, that only those who are of faith, he says, are sons of Abraham. Again, Abraham became a father, if you would, of a spiritual line of people. Not only a physical line, certainly the Jews are the literal sons of Abraham, according to human flesh. However, Abraham kind of became the father of a whole new spiritual line, a line of people, sons and daughters, who would be justified or made right with God by faith. That's why he says there in verse 7, we should know that only those who are of faith are the spiritual offspring and descendants of Abraham, those who experience the same blessing. Verse 8, he says, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles. Remember, that's anyone who's non-Jewish, that God would also justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying in you, that's through Abraham, all the nations shall be blessed. So Paul here refers to the original calling of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He quotes from now here seeing that in Abraham's spiritual calling, God would give to him a messianic promise. And even in this quotation here, in you, all the nations shall be blessed. Paul, with spiritual perspective, could see that when God was saying that to Abraham, that God was already thinking about how through Abraham, then through the Jews, to ultimately yield the Messiah, that through Abraham's line and lineage, humanly, All nations of the world would be blessed with right relationship with God. And so Paul says, in a sense, God was already preaching the gospel, the good news of being justified by faith alone through Abraham when he was saying that. God was already thinking about it. He was, in a sense, preaching the gospel through Abraham that anyone could be justified by faith by already saying all nations would be blessed through him. Verse 9, again, he says, so then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. You notice, again, Paul keeps doing this. He's tying together what? Those of faith 
and those who are blessed. I mean, you see how he's repeatedly coming back to this subject? Verse 9, he says it again. He says, those who are of faith are those who are blessed with believing Abraham. Again, the blessing of God comes through believing and trusting God. That's hard for us to accept in our logic because we live in a works-based world, right? You don't work, you don't get paid. You perform well, you get paid better. With God, God says, you believe, I bless. God says, I want you to believe that I want to bless and I'm going to bless whether you deserve it or not, whether you performed good enough or not, just because I'm a good God. I'm a God who blesses people. And so God says, my blessing comes to those who believe that I'm a good, gracious, blessing God. And what a wonderful thing. Paul keeps bringing this back. Those who live by faith end up experiencing God's blessing, receiving God's help, not those striving to acquire and make it come to pass for themselves. He says, verse 10, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, he quotes once again, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, he quotes again from Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. So again, Paul's continuously using scripture, Jewish scripture, Old Testament scripture to reinforce this teaching that a person is made right with God, that a person receives God's gracious blessing, not by their performance, but how they actually relate to God by trusting him and through having faith. He kind of sets forth two paths here in verse 10 and 11 uh, of trying to be right with God and get his acceptance and even experience his blessing in our lives. The first one he portrays there in verse 10 is endeavoring to do it by the works of the law. He quotes here in uh, chapter, or excuse me, in verse 10 from Deuteronomy chapter 27, where he says there that the scripture says, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. See, the law of Moses required people to perform with absolute perfection. And if you look at the Old Testament, there's over 600 commands of what to do and what not to do. And together with all those commands is those commands, according to the law, had to be kept 24 hours a day, seven days a week, no errors, no mistakes. And, and in a moment, if you did one thing wrong or if you accidentally forgot to do something right, you blew it. One broken law, you were a lawbreaker. And one time you broke the law, the Bible said, God's word said, if you break one law, you become guilty of breaking the entire law and you come under the curse of the law and suffer its punishment. That Again, you see what he's saying there? Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. It required absolute perfection. If you didn't provide absolute perfection, you were under the curse of the law, which was death and punishment. Now, look, if a person wants to try to this day still to be accepted by God, to earn God's blessing, to keep holy, to be right with God, to go to heaven and relate to God in that way, according to the law, the Old Testament law, that is what is required of them. They must keep all things 
perfectly and do them. And if they don't perfectly keep all things and do them, they're cursed. They're under the curse of the law, the judgment of of what God brings for those who are lawbreakers. Now, I don't know about you. That doesn't appeal to me very much. I don't want to be in that category. And and he says here, but this is what people put themselves under because they're putting themselves under a performance-based relationship with God that says, God, I will perform good enough, and that is how you will accept me. God, we can perform good enough by what we do and don't do to make ourselves right and acceptable and to earn your blessing. And he says, well, if you do that, one slip up, and you're under the curse of the entire law and this judgment and punishment as well. Look, living according to the law in legalistic ways, it will always bring death to your spiritual life because it will make you always feel constantly guilty because you'll find out quick you'll never, ever, ever, did I say that yet? Measure up. And it'll it'll just kill you from the inside out. Now, the other way that Paul says that is a much better way to relate to God, it's the right way to relate to God, is it requires faith, listen, in the perfection of another person. And that's Jesus. And that's what Paul says there in verse 11. No one's justified by the law in the sight of God. That's evident. He says, for the just, those who are right with God, the just, they shall live by faith. He quotes from Habakkuk chapter two, there where Habakkuk heard this promise of God literally, and it was hard to get his mind around it But Habakkuk ultimately realized, though I don't fully understand it, I'm just going to believe it, God. I'm just going to accept it. It's your word and it's your promise. And it was in that moment that the Bible says the just, the one who lives right with God, does so by faith. Again, a spiritual path that is based on faith in the perfection of another, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law for us in his perfection and sinless life on our behalf, that is the way to be right with God, to believe in the perfection of another person, the person of Jesus and what he did, and that will produce not only true salvation, but it will keep you in a place where you keep experiencing life. Because though you perform and I try and perform, and we try and love and serve the Lord, when we fall short, we can say, Jesus, thank you so much that this isn't based on me, but it's based on what you did for me. And Lord, I'm sorry, and I'm, I'm going to try and do better next time. But Lord, thank you that you did all that was necessary, and I can trust in your grace. And it keeps a life and a vitality and condemnation from us. He says, verse 12, yet the law is not of faith. But again, he quotes Leviticus 18, the man who does them shall live by them, be stuck living by the laws, the ideas. You know, it's often been said before, the law says do, Faith says done, right? The the law says behave, grace, and faith says believe. The law says try harder. Faith says receive more, trust more, believe in God's grace and goodness. Look how Paul concludes verse 13 and 14. He says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed, he says, quoting again from the Old Testament, is everyone who hangs on a tree that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that is in a relationship with Christ Jesus, that we might receive, he says, the promise of the Spirit 
through faith. So Paul concludes again by declaring what Jesus did for us. Why? He says here in our verses, so that we would not have to be under the curse of the law, which was that you and I deserve death when we break the law, that we're under the curse of its punishment. He says Jesus came to free us from having to perform to a state of perfection for God because he mercifully knew that we couldn't do that. The law puts all sinners under a curse, but as he said, Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. He fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. What's even more amazing is then after he did that, in a substitutionary way, he says here, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, prophetically speaking of Jesus, how he ultimately, as he hung upon the tree, the wood of the cross, he would bear the curse of the law and its punishment for all of us as lawbreakers. And he embraced the curse upon himself in a substitutionary way so that we could be redeemed, so that we could be freed from that punishment that we deserve. That's why Paul says in verse 13, Christ has redeemed us, set us free by his payment and his death and blood. He's redeemed us from the law, having become a curse for us. Paul writing to the Corinthians said it this way, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's why Paul concludes in verse 14 saying, this was all so that the blessing, the blessing of Abraham, what was the blessing of Abraham? To be right with God by faith. To be accepted by God through faith alone in what God said. Not performance, but just believing what God says is true, that the blessing of that might come upon our lives as Gentiles in Christ Jesus, in a relationship with Jesus Christ. By knowing Jesus as Savior and Lord, trusting what he did, we can be righteous before God. Romans 3 says, The righteousness of God apart from the law, which is through faith in Jesus Christ. See, there is righteousness. It's not our righteousness. It's the righteousness of God. God supplies a heavenly standard righteousness, and he gives us that righteousness that's his righteousness through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He gives us the righteousness of Jesus to stand before him. And do you notice how Paul keeps continually coming back to, again, this concept of how we receive? Look at the end of verse 14. That we might receive, he says, the promise of the Spirit through faith, again, as if it wasn't said enough already that God's way of receiving is not by earning, it's not by performing, it's not by doing enough to where God kind of like he's obligated to bless, but that God's way of receiving the work, the promises of God, the promise of his spirit is through faith, it's through believing in who God is and what God's done, and what God has promised to do. God wants us to receive, whether it's the promise of salvation or the power of his spirit working in our lives through every promise of God, through our trust. Paul says in Romans 4, Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise can be sure to all. Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all. I'll tell you this. I've been around Christians for a while now. You have as well. Some Christians are way more spiritual than I am. 
they can do way better works than I can do. If it was by works and not by grace, some of us would be in real big trouble because we would say, God, I can't work like that. I can't do what he does. I can't live the way that she does. But God says, so that it might be sure to all, it's by grace. By grace. What a wonderful thing. Believe that and receive that. Let's stand together and pray, folks.